excuse me, I'm, I'm hungry. You know, there's nothing like a good piece of fruit. You know that? Oh, yeah. That is delightful. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Good morning, church. Well, today we conclude uh, our series on the discipline of God. And we started out wandering in the deserts where God disciplined His people. He takes them to the desert because... The people are forced to rely on God and God alone. And the lesson to be learned is that God is enough. Anything more than relying on God, if you're trying to rely on anything else, well, that's really coveting. One of the big ones. The Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet. And if you remember, I talked about how Israel sent seven spies into the Promised Land to scope it out. Well, I didn't mention two of those came back with a positive report. Joshua and Caleb. They were like, let's go. We're ready. God's on our side. We can do this. The Bible said that they followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly. And that's what God wants from us when we are in the desert. Wholehearted devotion. So then we move from the desert into the vineyard where God prunes the branches. And the lesson to be learned is that you should remain in Jesus. Even through hardships, when you're being pruned, to remain in Jesus. So today, we picked up where we left off. We're still in the vineyard. And uh, ultimately, we're going to conclude with what our attitude should be while we're in the desert. The only place where repentance occurs the only place where growth and maturity occur. And uh, you might notice on your communication card, we're going to get there. The third bullet point down is kind of the heart of what I want my message to be. Examine your attitude 
towards God in hardship in the desert. Okay? And you can reread John chapter uh, 15, verses 1 through 12, and memorize those first two verses. I think that would be very helpful. John chapter 15, verse 1 through 2. So the vineyard, it's a common theme throughout the Bible from the beginning to the very end. And that's because Israel, the nation of Israel, determined that they were the vine of God. Israel was God's vine. Just like the bald eagle symbolizes America or the Statue of Liberty symbolizes America, so the vine, the grapevine, was the primary symbol for Israel, God's grapevine. It was on their coins. It was on their buildings. In fact, when Jesus began his ministry on earth, King Herod had just completed his lavish temple, including the courtyard it took up 40 acres. And it was complete with precious jewels, marble, and gold. And it had what's known as the great golden vine. It had actually two vines in primary places. But you'll see the temple in this picture right here. And along the top of the temple, you'll notice a banner that goes around it. Here's a closer view of it. Maybe you can see that it's a vine with clusters of grapes on it. And then on an interior door, if you go to the next slide, please, yes. Um, this is a li- I like this picture. It's a little model of the temple, and you see those little priest dolls with their hands up, praising God. But you'll see in this model that uh, the pillars around the entryway to the holy place have a golden vine going all the way around the door. This was the great golden vine. And many a good Hebrew man would come to the temple with gold to contribute. And that gold would be formed into a cluster of grapes, which would be added on to this golden vine. If the man didn't have enough gold to uh, contribute enough gold for a, a cluster of grapes, he could just contribute one grape. And those priests would go put one gold grape on an existing cluster of vines. You can see on the model, it's hard to see, but on the right, you'll see a priest up on a ladder getting ready to, to put another grape on one of the great clusters. So, with this in mind, Jesus, when he talks about vineyards and vines, he's not simply talking about agriculture or planting a garden. He's talking about an imagery that was rooted at the very heart of Jewish heritage. It would be like if Jesus was in America today And he mentions the land of the free and the home of the brave. That would sort of stir some patriotic affection in our hearts, right? Or if he was to say, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. Okay, that's huddled masses, not huddled mouses. Whenever I hear that, I think huddled mouses, like little mouses huddled together. But it's give me your tired, give me your poor, and huddled masses. If Jesus was to say that, that also, that would kind of prick our hearts to where we would have these patriotic affections. So whenever Jesus talks about the vine or the vineyard, it's actually deeply tied to Jewish tradition and patriotism. The great golden vine with Israel, God's vine. So the vine metaphor, um, it was used a lot in the prophets of the Old Testament. 
So, for example, we have a scripture for that. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. Listen to this scripture. Isaiah says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruits. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and throws will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. This is chock full of vine language, is it not? However, not in a very good way, right? And this is kind of the way the, the rest of the prophets use the vine metaphor. They say the vine was supposed to be good. It was intended to bear good fruit. But Isaiah depicts it as sort of running wild and out of control. And it only produced bad fruit. Have you ever accidentally taken a bite of bad fruit? Okay, what was that like? You bite into it and you're just like, Ugh. right? It's not very pleasant. That is Isaiah's take on what has happened to Israel through idolatry and things like this. Bad fruit. This is good fruit. With that in mind, I've got to, I've got to get this image of good fruit in my mind, so excuse me. Hmm. Much better. That is a delight. Okay. Now, with all that background in mind, listen to John chapter 15 again, verses 1 through 8. Where Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay? So, Jesus says... That he is the true vine. He is the true vine. Now, to the original audience, that would be a little bit scandalous, wouldn't you say? If Israel, the nation of Israel was supposed to be the vine, and Jesus comes on the scene and says, wait a second, you know about this vine of Israel, right? Well, I 
am the real vine. I'm the genuine vine. The real, true vine. He's basically saying, you can't belong to God and rely on your Jewish heritage. It doesn't work that way. You have to be in intimate relationship with me. You can't fall back on your Jewish blood. Okay? You're going to have to follow my commandments. You're going to have to love like I love. So, he says, basically he says, listen, being a child of God, it's not about your bloodline. It's not about who your family is. It's not about where you were born or which country that you live in. It's not about your church membership either. In other words, if you were to place membership here at Heartland Church of Christ and you were to come to church every Sunday, that'd be wonderful. But that wouldn't be enough. You're not done yet. Putting your faith into action, putting your faith to practice, and loving like Jesus loved is the end goal. The church should just be the means to that goal. Just like the vine is supposed to be the means for producing good fruit, right? so the church should be the means for which we bear good fruit today. So the true church are those who love like Christ loved. And we should come to church today to be encouraged to do that better. Okay, so church membership, coming to church every Sunday, that's great. But it should be done not as the end goal, but as the means to be more Christ-like, be encouraged to be more Christ-like. That's the end goal. So Jesus says it's not about falling back on your Jewish blood. It takes more than that. You're going to have to obey my commands. You're going to have to love like I love. You're going to have to endure being pruned from time to time. That's what is life. But as long as you remain in me, remain in my love, and obey my commands, love like I love, then when God comes to visit his vineyard and he tests the fruit, he can say, oh yeah, that's what I'm talking about. This is just delightful. That's what reaction we want God to have of us. Well done. Well done. So moving on now, <clears throat> kind of from the desert and into the vineyard, let's take a step back and let's consider what our attitude should be when we go through places like this. The desert where things are taken away from us and we're forced to rely on God. Or when we're going through any hardship, we're being pruned. What should our attitude be during these times? And I want you to consider four different attitudes today. We'll cover them briefly. So the first of four attitudes. What should our attitude be in the desert? Well, one might just resignedly accept being disciplined by God. Right? So it's like, yeah, you know, I don't like it. It's tough. But what am I going to do? Who can stand against the will of God? Otherwise, I'd just be banging my head against the wall. Right? Now, there is some nobility in that. 
Okay? You are submitting to God's will. But ultimately, is that what a loving father would want your attitude to be? Now, you can show me your hands on this. Be honest. How many of you parents out there have ever said, because I said so? Okay? I think I've already said that. And Liesl's only 19 months old. She had no idea what I was talking about. But, you know, I get it. We say, because I said so. But, you know, wouldn't you prefer it if your children understood why you said so? And they didn't do it just because you said so, but they understood kind of the thought process, the intentions there. They understood why you said so. So, resignedly accept discipline. The second attitude to consider is uh, impatient. Just kind of having the attitude that you want it over with as soon as possible. So you're like, yeah, God, I get it. You're disciplining me. Um, you discipline your children. You train them up. But you and I both know that I don't have time for this right now. I don't have time for this interruption in my life. Maybe another time, but not right now. Okay? That's our second attitude. And again, you might find some nobility here, but ultimately this attitude is not the attitude a child of a loving father would have. It's, it's something negative to be endured, like to hold your breath through, or you go down to the basement while the storm passes over. You're just trying to get it over with, hoping it'll pass by. But a father wants you to pay attention to discipline, right? He just doesn't want you to endure it and, all right, let's get it over with. He wants you to pay attention to that discipline. There's something to be learned here. So, resignedly accept, uh, impatient, and then the third attitude is just viewing the discipline of God as simply as punishment, and then you're resentful about it. So, you have a resentful attitude. Now, when Jesus was on earth, uh, the Roman Empire, you know, they, they worship these lowercase g gods, and whenever natural disasters would strike, um, an earthquake or a famine, the attitude was that the gods, the lowercase g gods, would be doing this to punish the people, to sort of take revenge on the people of earth. So there's this one Roman, his name is Lucan, and listen to what he said about this. He said, happy were Rome indeed, and blessed citizens would she have if the gods were as much concerned with caring for men as they are with exacting vengeance from them. The person who is resentful says, God, what did I do to deserve this? Well, maybe the better question should be, God, what are you trying to teach me in this? Help me understand what you're trying to make of me during this discipline. Help me to see that. So finally, one more attitude to consider. One may accept the discipline of God confident that it is coming from a loving Father. And if this is not your attitude, if you do not accept discipline sincerely and genuinely, I want you to consider the alternative. What if God never 
discipline you? What if your loving father never disciplined you? What would that mean? I think it might mean one of two things. It might mean that God knows that you are unteachable. What's the point of disciplining somebody that you know is not going to learn from it? Right? So it could mean that. Or it could mean that God doesn't care about your future well-being. So think about the alternative of not being disciplined by God. They're not very good. Okay? Because God is a loving Father and He cares about your future well-being. A father who doesn't discipline is a father indeed, but not a loving one. Not a loving one. We know that loving fathers discipline in order for their child to learn something and for them to do well in the future, to grow and mature. I want you to imagine for a minute that you're a good Christian man, you do your best to help other people, you even help build a church. And you lead in-home Bible studies in your home. That's what an in-home Bible study is. It takes place in your home. And um, you're also a successful businessman. You're just trying to do the best you can. And then imagine that some of your good friends, your brothers and sisters in Christ, the same ones who are studying the Bible with you in your home, they fall on hard times financially. Their businesses are not doing well. The economy is shot. So they come to you for help. And you, thinking you're doing something heroic, you go to the bank, you take out a loan, and you give money to your friends. Well, this is Bo and Gary Mitchell, pictured above. And uh, this was them. But some of that money that they gave wasn't used appropriately. One of their friends wasn't as honest as they thoughts or more desperate than they knew. And so, long story short, Bo Mitchell was charged with a federal crime which landed him in federal prison. Now put yourself in Bo's shoes. Good Christian man, trying to help your brother and sister, trying to help your friends, and here you are going off to federal prison for up to 11 months. Put yourself in his shoes as you enter into a room just like this, sort of a rat's nest. This is the first place that you throw you, they throw you and you're just left on your own. And immediately, this big dude comes right up to your face and says, Man, I want you to know that that's my shirt you have on right there. Wives, what do you do? when this happened to your husband? What would your attitude be? You're, you're now left with your kids at home without a husband, without a father. What's your attitude going to be? Well, needless to say, this was a very difficult season for Bo and Gary Mitchell. And there was some fist pumping towards God. Some why questions being asked. Some questioning of God's control God's sovereignty. But during the whole experience, 
these remarkable, miraculous things happen to Bo and Gary Mitchell. And it had to happen this way. Why did it have to happen with Bo Mitchell going to prison? It doesn't make sense to us. Why couldn't it be done some other way? Some, some way that's more comfortable for us. Well, I have a, an audio clip of an interview of Bo and Gary Mitchell with Focus on the Family. Um, and I want you to listen to what lessons they learned from this experience. And I would encourage you to go find this podcast uh, on Focus on the Family. It's called Grace Behind Bars. Uh, Bo and Gary Mitchell have also wrote a book with the same name, Grace Behind Bars. And they have a remarkable story to tell. Um, in this clip, it's only three and a half minutes long, so you don't get a lot of detail, but you kind of get the heart of their message. So, take a listen, and you know, if you have a, a fruit cup, enjoy your fruit while you listen. It's not going well. As we wrap up, um, what is that word of encouragement to the person who's shaking their fist at God, saying, why have you forsaken me? Well, why aren't you here? Uh, you got a story as a couple that you experience that feeling of being forgotten by God, being convicted of a felony you feel like wasn't fair, that you were duped, that you didn't understand. What advice do you have for that person? It's not prison that they're facing, but it could be divorce. It could be a prodigal child. It could be... A call from their doctor. A call from the doctor. What do you say to them? I think that what you say to them is, you know, God loves you deeply. He loves you deeply, and he knows what you need to come closer to him. And if you will really choose him and what he has for you, God's got great gifts for you in the middle of these very difficult times. And I say, get ready in advance by coming into a relationship with Christ making right choices in doing your part in responding to this gift of salvation by making those right choices and living in obedience because you will get a call. It's going to happen to everybody. It's how life works. So when you get that call, have your roots down in Christ so you can maximize whatever the pain experience is you're going to face and and know that you are going to come out a better person and God, Romans 8.28, uh, He will work everything together for good. So if there's sin involved and you've caused something bad, that's why He went to the cross, was to forgive you of that sin, gives you a fresh start. If there's no sin involved and you just get a call from your doctor that says you're in bad shape here, you need to come back and see me quick because we're dealing with a serious cancer issue, you've got what it takes in Christ Jesus to not only withstand what's coming your way but overcome it and uh, he'll turn that upside down so he's in the business of making our lives all they were meant to be from the start and I wish I was sitting here talking about being the quarterback on five consecutive Super Bowl teams but that's not what it took for me what it took for me was going to prison and uh, glad I went don't want to go back except as a guest speaker but if God wants rain it's rain for me. So I would just say, 
Get ready. Well, and I so appreciate that, Bo and Gary, because I think in our culture today, in the Christian community, we relate to the Father in a kind of a quid pro quo relationship. Lord, I will tithe, I will go to church, I will teach my kids all the right things, I'll treat my spouse right. And in exchange for that, Lord, I want a comfortable and peaceful life. Is the deal work, Lord? Is that good for you? And sometimes he says, I'd say every time he says, no, I want your heart. And I'm going to take you through some things so I can teach you to be humble, to teach you to be selfless, to teach you to be loving and kind. And that's what's most important to me. And it has happened in your life. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, what a... I think my favorite thing uh, that Bo Mitchell said was how God you know, has plans for us and who He wants us to be. He has this incredible plan for who He wants us to be. And you can't get there overnight. You can't get there with ease. It takes hard work. It takes going through something to get to that person that God has planned for you. And how He said you have to be deeply rooted in Christ. So when something does happen, when you get that call, that interruption in your life, might not be prison, but whatever it is, you can cling to God and trust in Him. Psalm chapter 66, verse 10 through 12. For you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water. But you brought us to a place of abundance. You brought us to a place of abundance. You know, that might mean heaven. That does mean heaven for us someday. But in the meantime, here on earth, I think that applies maybe even more so. That He brings our character, who we are, and the fruit that we bear into a place of abundance. That's vineyard language. Abundant crop. He wants us to bear abundant fruits. So what is your attitude in the desert? What is your attitude while you're being pruned? The only places where repentance and maturity and growth can occur. Do you trust that He is a loving Father? That God is for you and cares for you and wants you to be something great? That bears an abundance of fruit. Or are you resignedly accepting this discipline? Are you just trying to get through it as quickly as possible? Are you resentful? I encourage you to remember, oh, it's hard, but discipline is a good thing. So remember, God is enough. You don't need anything more. That's where God teaches us that He is enough. We don't have to rely on anything else. When we're in a place that is like a desert, God provides to teach us that we can rely on Him. And we're in, when we're in the vineyard, when, our, when we get into a mess and running wild, we are pruned so that we can bear more quality fruit. 
So remain deeply rooted in Jesus so that when God comes to His vineyard, hmm, that is so good. This is the reaction we want God to have of our lives. Oh, man. Well done. You know, Scripture says that we bear fruit that glorifies God. That's what it means right there to glorify God when He comes down and He sees what we're all about and it's just a delight. Not repulsive. He'd want to spit us out. But it tastes great. Well, if you're having trouble today in your journey through the desert, if you're having trouble being pruned and you're resentful or you're just trying to get through it as quickly as possible, You know what? You're not alone. You are not alone. Make your hardship known so that we can pray for you, so that we can embrace you, so that we can love you like Jesus loved us and loved you. We are the means to which good fruit occurs. So we trustworthy. This is the place where comfort should happen. Okay? Um, If you see your need to be deeply rooted in Christ, maybe you're not deeply rooted in Christ. Maybe you don't believe you're not a Christian. Maybe it's time. Because you know what? Maybe life has fallen short of your expectations. Maybe you're disappointed in what life has become. Let me tell you, Jesus never disappoints. He doesn't say your life is going to be easy, but He's always there providing for you. He is trustworthy. He even died for your sin. You needed salvation. He provided for you. He died for your sin. So if you would like to become a Christian today, be baptized into Jesus' death. He died for your sins. When you're baptized, you're saying, I'm dying to that sinful self. And I'm being born again to follow Christ. Will you be perfect? Nope. But Jesus will be your Lord, Savior. And your sin will be forgiven. Whatever your need, come on up. Um, We can baptize you. We can pray for you. Whatever you need. Let's be standing as we sing our invitation song.